Hey, how you doing? And welcome back to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing podcast. You may be thinking, where is Patrick Polk and what's happened to his voice? But rest assured, he is completely okay. We're sharing around some of the podcasting responsibilities so we can send more fantastic content your way. I'm Ali Selby, and today you'll be listening in on an interview with one of the world's greatest short sellers, Jim Chanos, the founder of Kinecos Associates. After working as an analyst for several firms, Chanos founded Kinecos, which is Greek for cynic, in 1985. Throughout his career, Chanos has identified and shorted numerous corporate disasters, the most notable being a short position in energy and commodities giant Enron a year before it filed for bankruptcy in 2001. Today, you'll be hearing his current view on markets, where he is seeing froth, as well as why he believes short sellers are about to come into a bit of luck. We also talk about some of the learnings from his successful short of Enron, as well as other fraudulent companies he believes have been overlooked by the market today. And just in case you're wondering, we also discuss whether he recommends other investors pursue a career as a short seller as well. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, click the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Livewire Markets. I'm Ali Selby and today we have a very special one for you. All the way from Miami in the US, we're joined by Jim Chanos. He's one of the world's greatest short sellers and the founder of Kinecos Associates. He became world famous after predicting the demise of energy and commodities company Enron. And today he's sitting down to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. We really appreciate it. For those Aussie investors who may not know you or Kinecos, can you tell us a little bit about the firm and what makes it different to other investment managers and perhaps the meaning behind the name? So uh, I started the firm back in 1985 uh, and the idea was to provide a, a portfolio of overvalued securities on the short side to hedge people's exposures uh, on the long side. And, and the idea was always uh, uh, more interesting and more lucrative to do that than simply either go to cash or use futures um, to hedge a portfolio. Um, the root of the, the firm's original name uh, came from actually my original partner's wife. And um, she, uh, she pulled it out of one of her uh, ancient Greek history books. And uh, the, the Kinikos were a group of ancient Greek philosophers who lived outside of Athens and believed that self-discipline and independence of thought was the way to true happiness. But you would recognize it as the root of the word cynic. They were the cynics. It's obviously been a difficult decade for short sellers, particularly over the past two years. Is there any evidence that that environment is changing? So it has been. It's been the last four or five years have been difficult, really, since, since sort of 2018. Um, but that changed rather dramatically uh, around uh, the summer, fall of last year. 
Um, and for us, uh, 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 our so-called alpha, how we do relative to the market, which is how we get paid. Um, we have two basic pools of capital. We have our traditional short only uh, funds, and then we have a hedged version of that, which is hedged uh, with market indices. And uh, the alphas began to expand rather dramatically starting in, in, in the late summer um, uh, of 2021. But the, uh, the early part of 2021 and, and most of 2020, it was a nightmare for short sellers. I mean, it was uh, uh, culminating in the meme stocks and yeah. the big short squeeze that a lot of companies saw in their equities in January of, uh, of 2021. But uh, in, in my view, that was sort of the ending of something, not the beginning of something. A lot of hedge funds actually uh, covered their shorts when that happened, saying that there was unlimited risk, that, that these kinds of stocks could go up tenfold on you. And our view is a little bit differently. Our view is that that was sort of the last uh, gasp of a retail speculative mania in, uh, in all kinds of assets. But by and large, um, what we saw in, in, uh, in 2021 and late 2020 was very akin to what I saw in, in 1999 and early 2000 in the, uh, the end of the dot-com era, where stocks began to go up on parabolas, um, uh, almost uh, 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 irrespective of what the fundamentals were, or even with, with even questionable fundamentals. And that's not something that's usually sustainable for long periods of time. What are you seeing on the ground at the moment in the US? Australia is often a few months behind you guys. And where do you see, I guess, the S&P and the NASDAQ moving from here? Yeah, I mean, I, my market predictions are, are worth pretty much nothing. So, and, and since we run, you know, both hedged uh, and, and we're running our portfolio as if our clients are long, our idea is to just focus on the companies uh, themselves. I will say, however, as I, to just amplify what I what I said before, is that we did see, I think, record amounts of speculation in the U.S. stock market last year, and that may take some time to work off. Now, you know, does that mean the market's going down thirty percent from here? I I have no idea. Does it mean we go flat for a while, or just returns are are okay for a while? I mean, that could be too. I I really don't know, but I do know that that a lot of equities are still priced for perfection. And, and companies that we think actually might not be worth anything are trading at, at, at 10 to 15 times revenues in many cases, admittedly down from 20 times revenues, but you know are probably going to one times revenues. So I, I, it really, that part of the market uh, is still very, very uh, richly priced. Is there a stock that comes to mind that can speak to that? <laughs> There's a lot of them. Um, so, so uh, you know, we we have been infamously short Tesla for years, and and to me, I, it would be one one name I would have your viewers just keep an eye on as a bellwether, because it reminds me a lot of Cisco, and, and in the uh, in 1999 2000 when Cisco went parabolic, uh, Cisco you know made routers and 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 equipment for the internet. But by 1999 and 2000, Cisco was trading at a huge multiple of revenues, and people were just extrapolating out that Cisco would be in all other kinds of businesses that they actually never got into. Um, and uh, although Cisco did fine as a company going forward, the stock collapsed. And with Tesla, you have an auto manufacturer that's trading at um, a huge multiple of revenues, 
Uh, most auto companies trade at half of one half of revenues because they're cyclical. Tesla trades at nine or ten times revenues. Um, uh, a huge ninety times the estimated earnings. Um, so investors are still basically putting all their hopes and dreams on this company, saying it will be an energy company, it will be a green company, it will be an EV company, it will be an autonomous driving company, um, and and what have you. And so um, an insurance company. I mean, people are just putting out all <laughs> kinds of things on the back of this company. And and there's usually in every bull market there's a stock like this that captures the hopes and dreams. It becomes a canvas upon which investors just extrapolate all kinds of things, usually led by a charismatic leader. And I think Elon yes. Musk yep. qualifies as that. And 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 so that's a that's a, a stock that I would watch as a as a real indicator of this uh, of this market. I want to go back to do a little bit more macro now. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is dominating headlines. Hopefully, we see a peaceful end to that sooner rather than later. But I'd like to know whether or not you've made any major portfolio changes in the wake of that war starting. Not really. I mean, the the, the war was sort of unexpected three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Uh, we haven't changed our exposures in any meaningful way because of it. Um, I, th I think the market is is down maybe a little bit since then. It's not down a lot in the U.S. I still think a bigger macro issue that people should keep their eyes on is the Fed and liquidity in the markets. That 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 um, QE just ended literally yesterday um, by the Fed, and the Fed is as indicated it's going to start raising interest rates. And the question will be how embedded is inflation, um, which nobody was even worried about a year and a half ago. Um, and now it's it's printing kind of crazy numbers. Will it get back to where the Fed and the ECB claim it will, i.e. 2%? Um, or are we looking at something that's now embedded at, at quite a bit higher? I would point out that, that if we are going to embed at 2% and U.S. growth is is now is uh, is real basis is two percent. You're looking at four percent nominal GDP, and and normally four percent nominal GDP would not have zero percent interest rates and a two percent ten year. You would have uh, meaningfully higher. You would have three or four percent short term rates and five or six percent ten year. Um, so interest rates, by any stretch of the imagination, even if inflation comes back down, are really really low. And what investors have to worry about is, is that regime changing? Um, and will we see higher rates going forward? You recently appeared on CNBC and said that right now is the time to be long the indices and short a lot of the craziness. Can you tell me what you meant by that and also where you're seeing craziness or froth right now? Yeah, so again, it, it gets back to sort of our core, core belief that there are lots of individual situations at any given time, sometimes more than others, um, that just don't make any sense to us, right? Investors have, have just extrapolated out um, uh, hopes and dreams or the company's playing accounting games or, or something's dramatically changed in the business. And, and yet, you know, we really don't want to be held hostage to the stock market. So the idea of being long the market and being short uh, these types of situations has always been attractive to us. So where 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 is that? Um, there are there are lots of areas with asymmetric risk rewards right now, as I indicated earlier, 
Um, a lot of them have to do with the fact that interest rates have been low so, for so long and people have gotten used to that. A lot of them have to do with, uh, with the accounting uh, games we see be played in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, one of the things we've been railing about for the last few years is the increasing use of pro forma earnings uh, metrics by companies that increasingly are disregarding large amounts of expenses in order to uh, to show profits. Mm. So I'll give you an example, a company like Square, uh, the big payments company that just bought um, uh, Afterpay, which is a uh, Aussie company, the buy now, pay later company. And, and Square uh, is uh, uh, lost money on a gap basis in the fourth quarter, but reported an adjusted profit. Uh, they're supposed to make, I think, an adjusted basis $1.25 this year with the stock over 100. Um, but that's adding back share-based compensation. If you actually uh, look at the earnings on a gap basis, they're supposed to lose money. And, and, and that's just a very good, vivid example of uh, the number of companies that are, are paying their uh, employees in stock and disregarding the expense. You talked about there being a new market regime. Do you feel like investors will continue to accept that, I guess, adjustment on balance sheets going forward? I, I think that, that, that people are beginning to catch on. So in the case of Square, just, uh, 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 excuse me, it's called Block now, but the symbol is <laughs> SQ, that's its old name. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a very, the reason I bring it up is, so the stock has gone from 240 to basically a little over 100 in the last six months. Um, so as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these kinds of companies are, are down quite a bit. But the pro forma EPS number for 2022 during that same time period has gone from 240 to $1.20. So it was trading at 100 times uh, in, in, uh, in October, September, whenever it peaked out. And it's still trading at almost 100 times now. And both of those are questionable estimates because they they add back the share base comp. Squares actually, as I said, probably going to lose money this year, or Block, excuse me, uh, is going to lose money this year. So uh, investors, I think, are catching on, and and that's why we're seeing some big drops in these kinds of tech names where the growth has slowed, and they aren't really making any money. They're just telling you they are because they're paying their their employees in stock. And by the way, that's a two-edged sword. Uh, we saw that in the early uh, uh, 2000s with when the dot-com era blew up. Um, companies that were aggressively paying people in stock options because they didn't have to expense them in the U.S. suddenly realized they had to pay people more and more as the stock declined. Uh, and there was more and more dilution. And so what was a virtuous circle on the way up became a vicious cycle on the way down. I want to talk about, I guess, the short that made you super famous in the world. It's Enron. Are there any learnings from this short that you think are still relevant today? So I teach a course on the history of financial fraud at, at, at the two institutions over my shoulder. And, and um, one of the lessons, one of the models of fraud that we talk about came, came really out of the Enron story by my friend Bethany McLean. It's, and it's her concept of legal fraud. Um, and it's a really, really important concept. And, and Enron was the paragon of this idea of legal fraud. And, and what Bethany said, and I teach, is that in the financial markets today, almost everything you see that is questionable is technically legal. By the, it's been vetted by the lawyers and the accountants. 
but yet there's an intention to mislead. If you take all of the legal games that, that Enron played, every single one of them was signed off by the lawyers and the accountants. Enron was not prosecuted for accounting fraud, um, even though the, the, the black hole was tens of billions of dollars once they went bankrupt. The insiders were basically convicted for lying to shareholders. And so it's a really important concept uh, that companies have a wide, wide berth to show their results and present their results in a pro forma manner and, and what have you. But you have to be very, very uh, aware that the whole pattern can be to mislead you, to make you think that something is much better than it really is. And I think that's the really important lesson um, to take away from, uh, from Enron, because they, they kind of wrote the book on that whole concept. Are there any fraudulent companies today that you think are being overlooked by investors or are currently hiding in plain sight? Yeah, sure. There's a number of them. Um, <laughs> I'm not about to reveal them. I have my clients pay me for something. So uh, okay, maybe what's your most exciting short position right now? Then well, again, I, I, I'm going to just say that that um, we have a number of them. We have a number of of, of sort of hundred dollar stocks that that we think are are probably worthless um, because the business model is is just broken, and yet they're uh, reporting numbers um, that that. Uh, are not real. And I think any, any investor right now should really be scrutinizing, particularly in tech, the tech area, where businesses are slowing down in terms of revenue growth and the companies are still unprofitable. And yet they're using something like adjusted EBITDA or adjusted EPS to tell you that, uh, that somehow they're being profitable. Because not only are they fooling you, they're fooling themselves if they're allocating capital to uh, in, in, you know, unprofitable core businesses uh, on the idea that, that you will value them based on, on some metric that doesn't reflect reality. Um, and so you can look at, and I'll just give you some companies we were short recently, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about. You can look at the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, for example, that, that well, the Uber recently told you that they're going to be uh, adjusted EBITDA positive you know, I think this quarter or at the end of the year, whatever it was. And yet, if you looked at the actual numbers, uh, they, that meant they were going to lose about $500 million that quarter. So, you know, the, the, going from half a billion dollar real loss to telling people you're profitable is really kind of amazing. Investors should be on guard for that um, on just how low our standards have gone in corporate America and elsewhere so that we say that we're, we're, we're profitable to this amount. And yet when you actually look at the financial statements, you see that they're not. Can I press you for one current short? <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, been, we've been public on a number of ideas. So I, I, can, I can certainly um, tell you that, that uh, one idea that, that is a blue chip idea that we've been short for a while, and we were short in the past, that I think is a playing very aggressive accounting games is my friends at IBM. Um, so if you look at IBM, IBM is, is supposed to be making $10 per share adjusted um, and, uh, and then $11 and $12. Right now we think IBM is actually earning closer to $5 and they're, they're, they're basically uh, um, uh, barely covering their dividend and the stock is trading at 120 some dollars. So the market thinks it's paying 12 times um, IBM's no growth earnings uh, at $10 going to 11. 
the fact of the matter is it's paying almost twice that. Now, it played this game back uh, back uh, eight or nine years ago uh, when the stock was $200 and Warren Buffett owned it and IBM was supposed to make $20 in the coming near future. So uh, investors valued the company at $200, 10 times that number. And uh, they weren't earning anywhere close to that. They were earning only about $10 at that time. And after a couple of years, the company had to finally come clean and say, yeah, we're not really earning $20. You should reset your expectations down 50%. We think they're going to have to do a similar kind of reset in the near future and uh, and reset expectations to well below where people think they're earning right now. I'd love to know what has been your most painful investment during your career. Is there one that comes to mind? Yeah, there are two. Um, uh, in the dot-com era, it was uh, AOL. America Online, which ultimately got was an accounting story and ultimately got bought out by Time Warner. I think we were shorting it at $8 and we covered it at $80. Um, and then it blew up Time Warner in the merger afterwards. Um, and then more recently, it has to be Tesla. Um, you know, we, we have thought that this company is over-earning. Uh, it wasn't making any money until a couple of years ago uh, in a very competitive field. Um, but uh, We've been wrong on the company and the stock in terms of at least their ability to make money. Um, we don't think 28% uh, gross margins are sustainable in the auto business, but so far uh, he's been able to do it. And, and investors, as I mentioned earlier, have been willing to give him a absolutely insane multiple um, to, uh, 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 to value the company at uh, 100 times earnings and, and nine or 10 times revenues. So uh, that's been painful. Have you covered your position in Tesla? Have you sold out? No, we still have some puts and uh, that are out of the money, but uh, I think one day we'll, uh, we'll pan out nicely. <laughs> Markets historically go up more often than they go down. I'd love to know how you personally deal with the risk of getting it wrong or as you talked there about Tesla, getting it right, but perhaps the market continues to push the stock higher. Yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, obviously uh, we know that, and that's why we we uh, for the most part uh, hedge our portfolios, right? With, we're long the indices, or our clients are long and and look to us uh, to hedge on the short side, um, and so we get that. However, I would point out one really big caveat to the concept that the market always generally goes up, which is true certainly in the United States, and that is most companies actually over time fail. An awful lot of companies uh, fail uh, all the time. And uh, uh, the average lifespan of a company, I believe, is something on the order of about nine or 10 years. Um, and so the indices, of course, are always self-selecting. So they're always picking the largest companies. And there, there's some inherent issues with that as well. But at least you are systematically exposed to the factors uh, that drive equity prices higher. Um, while you're discreetly and idiosyncratically short, you know, the bad guys. Okay, last but not least for today, I'd love to know, would you advise anyone early on in their career to become a short seller themselves to follow your path? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everybody. So the, the, the kind of the story I tell about that is, um, you know, almost all of us uh, are the product of, of positive reinforcement. Um, you know, if, if you're raised, it, it, your, your, your parents, if they're doing a good job, are, are basically encouraging you to follow uh, 
your passions, get an education, your teachers do the same thing. And, and all along the path, basically, uh, uh, you are positively reinforced um, throughout your career. And, and that's great. Um, that's the way society should, should uh, act. Um, but studies have shown that, that uh, rational decision-making, among other things, breaks down in an environment of negative reinforcement. Wall Street, uh, on a financial basis, Wall Street is a giant positive reinforcement machine. I mean, every day we come in, we're short 40 names. Uh, five or six of them are going to have positive research reports, analysts raising price targets, the CEOs on TV, there's a buyout rumor, whatever, whatever it might be. And, and it's just sort of the noise of the market. But it's a positive reinforcement machine. They're constantly telling you you should be owning these stocks. And if you're a short seller, that is basically negative reinforcement every single day. You're coming in basically told, being told you're wrong. And although the research should be the same, you should be using the same tools as investors on the long side are using, you know, what is the company worth? What are its prospects? How is it being priced relative to those prospects and the risks? Um, you know, coming in and every day being told you're wrong is not for everybody. And I used to think that, that good short sellers, you know, uh, uh, could be trained. Um, and, and now I pretty much 40 years later, I'm of the belief that you know, they can be trained, but you also have to have the ability to sort of drown out that, that negative reinforcement every day when you come in and just say, okay, well, I know that Macquarie Bank likes this or Merrill Lynch likes this or, or Goldman Sachs likes this, but they're wrong. They're getting their, they're getting their conclusions wrong. And here's why. Um, and so that takes that takes something a little bit different, and not everybody, I think, is well suited, nor should they be, uh, for that. So um, I, I think I've changed my view, and I think most good short sellers probably are also born as well as made. Well, thank you so much, Jim. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.